Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom and Hag I hope all of you had a wonderful time lighting the candles uh, for the second night, last night, and you've been enjoying your, your latkes and, and donuts, ganiot, uh, Gorging on a lot of those used to be something that I just called, you know, Sunday or any day of the week, but now it's a little more reserved for Hanukkah. When I started putting this together and thinking about what am I going to talk about for Hanukkah, that was back in uh, June or May, and I just started tossing around different ideas because in the books of Maccabees, there's, in the first two books especially, there are shout-outs to... uh, Egypt. There's shout-outs to uh, King Saul and Jonathan and David. There's, there's all kinds of different connections in, in Maccabees. And then something happened, October 7th. And it took a slightly different tone. And it begged the question to me, how do we frame the Gospels? and the apostolic writings? How do we frame what many of us will call the the New Covenant or the New Testament scriptures? If you're familiar with framing an argument, it's the premise you base it off of. It's your foundation for what you're putting forward. So when we frame Messiah, when when we frame the Gospels and the Apostles, Paul, Peter, James, and John, how do we do it? So, We'll start with where the Tanakh leaves off in Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of armies, so that it will leave them neither root nor branches, meaning you can't grow back. But for you who fear my name, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and frolic like calves from the stall. And you will crush the wicked underfoot, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, the statutes and the ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and strike the land with complete destruction. And with that, in around 430 B.C., the canon of the Tanakh was closed. And Israel the Jewish people, having come back from the diaspora, heard the final words from the last of the prophets. And there came on centuries of silence. The main events between Malachi and the birth and life, death and resurrection of Messiah happen in Maccabees. And I will submit to you they are effectively a bookend, an extra, a how should we take what comes next to the Gospels and to 
Messiah. Understanding the Maccabees, when I started asking different people, hey, what do you know about Hanukkah? And I heard a lot of uh, lights. Okay. What else? <sighs> Lasted longer than it should have. That's great. Uh, that is actually in Talmud. That's not even in the book of Maccabees. Uh, I'm not saying it didn't happen. But that is not even in the book of Maccabees to begin with. So what do we know about the Maccabean Wars? And I had a few people go, wars? Oh, boy. Okay. All right. Understanding Maccabees begins with Greece. And in case your geography on Greece isn't really what it was, is, or should be, we'll uh, have a little map. That's Greece. Sparta is in the south. A lot of you are familiar with Sparta. And going north, you'll find Corinth and Athens and Thebes. Not the Thebes in Egypt. There's a Thebes in Greece and Egypt, and they're different. And then at the top, you'll find Macedonia. And, or Macedon. And that was known for being kind of a backwater, less sophisticated place compared to the Athenians and compared to the Spartans. They were a little less known. Philip II of Macedon came to power in 359. Next slide. And he is best known for unifying all of Greece. He made a standard military unit, so it wasn't just people going out in a giant drove and attacking. They had uh, sophisticated ranks and a, a shield and a spear, and he made this the standard for the Greek army. He was also known for using a lot of siege weapons. So taking that standard military, he unified Greece, his son, who would succeed him, he had tutored by Aristotle. Aristotle passed on the idea that, hey, this Greek pantheon is ridiculous. It's all fake. The stories of these Greek gods are preposterous. Ignore them. His son was Alexander III, or, as he came to be known, Alexander the Great. Philip II was assassinated. Alexander took over at the age of 20. And Alexander had aspirations to grow the empire, pick up where his dad left off and continue. So Alexander, preparing for one of the big battles, he was debating how to go about it, and he was thinking, well, the main way to do this is to take this target and go around on land, and he had a dream. And in this dream... An angelic figure came to him and said, no, don't do that. Go across the water, and you will certainly have victory. They'll never expect that. Take the naval route, and you will succeed. So Alexander awoke from it, convinced that was the way to go, and that's what he did. So he went through all of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, came down, started to go into Lebanon and Syria. After the siege of Tyre, he came in and he ran into the Samaritans who said, oh, well, we're, we're great, but these Jews over here, they're terrible people. You should just sack their temple. They've been siding with the Persians. They're rude. They don't like our temple. They're our enemies, and they're your enemies too, oh, great Alexander. So Alexander kind of listens to him, and with a Samaritan entourage, heads towards Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the high priest in Jerusalem 
had had a dream. This man is coming. Don't worry, I've taken care of it. God says to him, be generous and be kind to him. He's not going to kill you. Be polite and everything will be okay. Alexander comes to Jerusalem, and this is from a series of sources, by the way. The the main one is Josephus. Alexander the Great comes to Jerusalem with his entourage and these Samaritans ready to, (laughs) now is when these Jews are really going to get it. The high priest walks out in his full attire with his ephod, which is not the norm, with the other Kohanim. Alexander the Great rides up on his white horse. From ground to the top of his head was 13 feet. He had this enormous horse, and he wore a big old hat too. So he was quite a sight to behold. Alexander looks at the high priest, dismounts his horse, and bows. Everyone around him says, what are you doing? And Alexander says, when I started my campaign, I would have this figure appear to me in a dream and say, take this daring option and you will succeed. And I did, and it worked every step of the way. And that figure who appeared to me in that dream is this man. So Alexander sent the Samaritans packing. And he was very, very kind to the high priest and the Jewish people. He basically said, what do you guys want? So Alexander came in and properly in the temple uh, through the priests offered sacrifices and had a, a series of back and forths. And he said, if the Jews want to join my army, I will have Jewish battalions so they don't have to break any of their laws. And you can avoid paying taxes in the seventh year, all kinds of things. And so to show their gratitude, they said, hey, a lot of the babies born this year will be named Alexander. And certain concessions were made to show their gratitude, allowing Greek culture to seep in. They also opened the book of Daniel and showed him where, you can read the prophecy, he is the one who would defeat Persia. So they said, even though we've sided with Persia in the past, don't worry about that. Alexander the Great goes on and doesn't live to be very old. He dies. But not before taking over most of the known world. After he died, his military was split between his generals. The entire empire was. And there was a lot of infighting that happened for many, many years. So Alexander came to power in 336 B.C. Quite a while later came along Antiochus Epiphanes. In around 175 B.C. is when he came to power. And Antiochus was actually known for being very eccentric. He would throw money to people in the streets. He would go to the the common man's bathhouses and different things. He would throw these elaborate parties and invite all kinds of people. So people knew him for being really weird. And his detractors uh, called him um, Antiochus Epimenes, which is a play on Epiphanes. So Antiochus means stubborn or uh, resistant, and Epiphanes is God manifest. So he was stubborn or resistant, God manifest. And Epimenes means madman. So uh, they bullied people with nicknames back then too. 
And this was before uh, the persecution of the Jewish people. Antiochus, wanting to continue to expand the empire and inspired by Alexander the Great, he was going into Egypt. And Antiochus came upon a Roman resistance. And Antiochus was debating what to do. And so when the Roman consul said, are you going to fight us or are you going to leave? Antiochus said, I don't know, I'm going to go think about it. And the Roman consul took out his sword, drew a line in the sand, and said, you decide before you cross that line whether you're staying to fight or leaving to not come back. Make a decision now or it's war. So Antiochus backed down. And he said, okay, we'll leave. And along from that came a report that he had died in war, which quite likely led to some rejoicing because he wasn't quite known for being the most generous of people to the non-Greeks. And there was a mini revolt in Jerusalem. Antiochus became furious because the high priest, who was fairly Hellenized himself, he changed his name to Jason, uh, started a rebellion in Jerusalem. Antiochus freaks out and commences with a giant slaughter. And that is where the book of Maccabees pick up. Uh, First Maccabees has 16 chapters. The temple is purified in chapter 4. There's a lot more history than just what we celebrate in Hanukkah. Second Maccabees is not a chronological continuation. It's a series of stories that happens throughout the first book. So if you're looking at this for chronological consistency, you're not necessarily going to find it outside of 1 Maccabees. Upon upon deciding that the Jews were a problem and that he had to deal with the Jewish religion and the Jewish people entirely, it's in 1 Maccabees. He, Antiochus, ordered them not to offer burnt offerings, grain offerings, or wine offerings in the temple, and commanded them to treat Sabbaths and festivals as ordinary work days. They were even ordered to defile the temple and the holy things in it. They were commanded to build pagan altars, temples and shrines, and to sacrifice pigs and other unclean animals there. They were forbidden to circumcise their sons and were required to make themselves ritually unclean in every way they could so that they would forget the law which the Lord had given through Moses and would disobey all its commands. The penalty for disobeying the king's decree was death. On the 15th day of the month in Kislev in the year 167 BC, King Antiochus set up the awful horror or abomination of desolation, if you will, on the altar of the temple. And the pagan altars were built in the towns throughout Judea. Pagan sacrifices were offered in front of houses and in the streets. Any books of the law which were found were torn up and burned. And anyone who was caught with a copy of the sacred books or who obeyed the law was put to death by order of the king. Month after month, these wicked people used their power against the Israelites caught in the towns. On the 25th of the month, these same evil people offered sacrifices on the pagan altar erected on top of the altar in the temple. Mothers who had allowed their babies to be circumcised were put to death in accordance with the king's decree. These babies were hung around their necks, and their families and those who had circumcised them were put to death. 
But many people in Israel firmly resisted the king's decree and refused to eat food that was ritually unclean. They preferred to die rather than break the holy covenant and eat unclean food. And many did die. There was a man in one of these towns named Eliezer. He was an old man, 90 years old. And he was actually friends with everybody. The observant Jews saw him as as a leader. He was a teacher, a scholar. And even the Greeks had a tremendous respect for him. So they came to him and said, hey, look, as a sign of obedience to Antiochus, to the king, to God manifest, we have, you need to come up in front of everyone and, and eat some pork. And hey, as far as everyone else is concerned, this is pork. But between you and me, we have some kosher meat here for you. It's kosher prepared, so you're not eating unkosher food. But only you're going to know that, okay? We don't, we don't want to have to do this. You definitely don't want to have to do this. But you have to. He refused. He, he was tortured. And just before his death, he said, The Lord possesses all holy knowledge. He knows I could have escaped these terrible sufferings and death, yet he also knows that I gladly suffer these things because I fear him. This old man knew that even appearing to do the wrong thing could turn thousands the wrong direction. So he avoided every appearance of evil. And he paid for it with his life, but he did so gladly. Now, I was I was read the stories of the Maccabees when I was a kid, and to be completely honest, uh, I vaguely remember any of it. Uh, It is a lot of details. There's a lot of details. Uh, the only story that stands out, there's one single story that I remember vividly. I was seven or eight years old the first time I distinctly recall it. And when I remember that story now, it's all those details. And I still remember being a little child listening to my dad read the, the books of Maccabees to us. And it's in Second Maccabees 7. The woman and her seven sons. And whew, that's a hard story to read. That's a really hard story to read. It was hard to read before I was married and had kids. A woman with seven children watching each of them brutally tortured and murdered. Having their hands cut off, their tongue cut out, their feet cut off, scalped, skin torn off of them, burned in a pot, boiled. All you have to do to make this stop, each one of them is told, is eat some pork. And you'll be a friend of the king. And we'll give you a high position and wealth. All you have to do to make it stop is forget the Torah. And this can all end now. Of course it's a lie. Each one of them refused. Down to the youngest, who was a child. 
And Antiochus tried to say, hey, I'll give you so much money if you just give in. And his mom starts to encourage him with a speech. And after a little bit, the son kind of cuts her off and says, let's get on with it, okay? I'm, I'm done here. It's a very hard story to read. How many of us have that kind of dedication? Honestly. All it seems, looking over the last couple of years, an employer has to do is uh, threaten to fire you, and we'll do all sorts of things. There was a comedian who, who joked that, he goes, I always wanted to think if I was alive in the, in the time of Nazi Germany and I was, I was in Germany, I'd be the person saying, no, you can't do that. Uh-uh. And then he realized, I didn't realize how much of a coward I was until they said, you have to go get this, this shot or you can't go to a pub. And he goes, oh, okay. He goes, I didn't, I didn't realize how much of a coward I was until they just threatened to cut me off from going to the pub. Interesting. And while he's pointing it out in humor, I think a lot of us found the last couple of years very eye-opening as if we needed a reminder from so many times in the past. Now, in Second Maccabees, it's written to kind of frame the story of Hannah and her seven sons and, and everything. I beg you not to become discouraged as you read about the terrible things that happened. Consider that this was the Lord's way of punishing his people not of destroying them. In fact, it is a sign of kindness to punish a person immediately for his sins rather than to wait a long time. The Lord does not treat us as he does other nations. He waits patiently until they have become deeply involved in sin before he punishes them. But he punishes us before we have sinned too much. So the Lord is always merciful to us, his own people. Although he punishes us with disasters, he never abandons us. Since October 7th, there's been a lot of stories coming out about what happened on that day, and many of them very, very gruesome. One interesting one, among the ones that are miraculous, was about a young man and a young woman. Each of them were raised as fairly observant Jews, but became somewhat wayward as they grew older. They met each other and married. Each of them who were living kind of observant lives, or not really, but they both had orthodox backgrounds. And the one thing they never forgot about as adults was the Sabbath. And they decided to make an exception because there's this really cool music festival that a bunch of people are going to be at, so we're going to go to this music festival because it's really cool. We can, we can make an exception this one time. So they go to this music festival, making this one-time exception for Shabbat because it's not that big of a deal, right? Even though it's not only... The weekly Sabbath. It's also in Israel, Simchat Torah. And we all know about the attacks that happened. And with each of them, they're tied up and taken off. And the Hamas fighters that were there said, we're not even going to waste bullets on you. We're just, we're just going to slit your throats. And the woman turns to her husband and says, this is what we get. We break Shabbat once. We break it one time. How quickly God's retribution comes upon us. And one of the Hamas terrorists, who was very fluent in Hebrew, said, what did you just say? And she goes, we always keep Shabbat. We always do. And this one time we decided not to, and, and this is what happens to us. And he says, 
look, those of you who are observant, we know there's something different about you. We're not here to kill people like you. Go. Run. Very, very surprising. Tell me God doesn't care about your observance. The face of the enemy changes over the millennia, whether it's the Greeks or the Romans, whether it's the Spanish Inquisition or the Nazis. But really, it's not us versus them. It's us versus us. Because the main enemy in the Maccabees was the Hellenized Jews that really allowed all of that to happen. There's always going to be a new enemy to fight. So if you're saying, well, this happened because those people over there We're all one family. It happened because there's sin with us, not them. It's us. Enter Matatyahu, an older man in Modi'in. He saw the terrible things happening in Jerusalem and moved to Modi'in. And he bemoans what he had seen happening. When Matatyahu saw the sins that were being committed in Judea and Jerusalem, he said, Why was I born to see these terrible things? The ruin of my people, of the holy city. Must I sit here helpless while the city is surrendered to enemies and the temple falls into the hands of foreigners? The temple is like someone without honor. Its splendid furnishings have been carried away as loot. Our children have been killed in the streets and our young men by the sword of the enemy. Every nation in the world has occupied her city, the city and robbed her of her possessions. All her ornaments have been stripped away. She is now a slave. No longer free. Look at our temple, profaned by the Gentiles, emptied of all its splendor. Why should I go on living? And of course, messengers of the king came to Modi'in and said, Everyone has to bow to the statue of Zeus. Matatyahu, you're an elder in your town. Matatyahu, by the way, is a Kohen, a descendant from Pinchas. And said, you're an elder. How about you set a good example for the rest of your Jews and let's get this moving, okay? He was asked about Zeus. He refused. So he replied after being asked to set the example. I don't care if every Gentile in this empire has obeyed the king and yielded to the command to abandon the religion of his ancestors. My children, my relatives, and I will continue to keep the covenant that God made with our ancestors. With God's help, we will never abandon his law or disobey his commands. We will not obey the king's decree. We will not change our way of worship in the least. So then, steps forward, one of the... Hellenized Jews, an assimilated Jew, and says, this guy's dumb. Hey, I'll do it, okay? So he bows down to Zeus, and Matatyahu kills him. And then Matatyahu goes and kills the, uh, the Greek guard that was there. And he basically says, if you're for God, and, you're for, and you're, if you're for God's Torah, if you're for the temple, if you're for Hashem, follow me. And he flees. And they start going from town to town and getting more followers. 
it reminded me of a story of a, a woman who uh, many, many years ago attended the shul. And at her, uh, at her memorial, I heard a story about her husband, who they were in Nazi-controlled Italy. And many people were trying to hide that they were Jewish, were, were trying to you know, not appear Jewish. Not him. Not him. He was, <laughs> he was brash. He would walk up to the SS guards on the streets, walk right up to them and go, Hey, are you Jewish? You look Jewish. Woo. He did not read uh, how, to, how to win friends and influence people. Because <laughs> he made some enemies doing that. And then one day he got a phone call saying, Run, now. They're coming for you. So he left. Next we come to a story that is not actually in the Maccabees, but it's commonly commonly associated with Hanukkah. The, the story of Judith, it's its own book. It's uh, anachronistic, meaning the times and the events and the place, none of it lines up. So if you're trying to look at it, you're going to see a number of problems. Nebuchadnezzar uh, was not over Assyria. Assyria was his name. He was over Babylon. And when the siege takes happens, there's, there's no city named Betulia, and uh, the timing of it's all wrong. So it's possible that it's fictional. Either the story is most likely fairly true, or it's a composite of a number of other stories. Judith has her town under siege, and she is a widow and very beautiful. And they have no food. They're quickly running out. So she ends up essentially befriending the Greek general, Holofernes, and kind of pulls a uh, a Yael on him. She's kind of Yael and Esther combined into one. She feeds him a bunch of salty cheese after many, many days of, of winning his confidence. And the salty cheese makes him very thirsty, so he drinks a lot of wine, gets drunk. He passes out. She cuts off his head, puts it in a bag, walks back into town, throws it down at the feet of the elders and says, there, it's not that hard. Let's go get the rest. And I remember, I remember a Rebetzin talking about this years ago, and she goes, and that's the story. We don't have these, you know, helpless little princesses in Judaism. Our, our Jewish uh, female heroines are, hey, taking care of business. All right. I'll, I'll take that for a role model for my daughters any day. Matityahu dies, and he blesses his sons, and he gives them a, a very long last speech. And then Judah, he says, Judah, whose nickname is... Maccabee, Hammer, he's going to follow you. He's going to lead you. You follow him. He'll lead you into battle. We didn't nickname him Hammer for nothing. Judah put together a group of men, and they became feared. They were massively outnumbered in in battle after battle after battle after battle. They didn't have a trained military. They didn't even have good equipment, and they'd go up against armored cavalry and, and horsemen and innumerable foot soldiers and just slaughter them. So there were several miraculous victories, despite being massively outnumbered. And then they're preparing for a final battle. And in 1 Maccabees 3, the Gentiles would have consulted their idols in such a situation, but the Israelites unrolled the book of the law to search for God's guidance. So Matityahu, uh, excuse me, Judah, had taken upon himself to say, what does the Torah say for us to do? So they said, if you just got married or any of these things, then if you're afraid, you're free to go. You're a little scaredy cat. I don't need you influencing the rest of us. Go. Antiochus had paid his men a full year's wages up front and then said, oh, no, I'm out of money. 
So he decided to go collect taxes in Persia and left. And he put Lysias in charge. Lysias, by the way, means to dissolve or destroy, which is hilarious considering what happens. Judah and his men fought and won the battle of Emmaus, which was a very miraculous and key victory, which led them into Jerusalem the following year. Meanwhile, in the Persian provinces, it didn't go so well for Antiochus. He became furious at a series of defeats and being so disrespected by the Persians. So it says in 2 Maccabees 9, he became furious and decided to make the Jews pay for the defeat he had suffered. Even though he's over in Persepolis, it was somehow the Jews' fault. So he ordered his chariot driver not to stop until they reached Jerusalem. With great arrogance, he said, I will turn Jerusalem into a graveyard full of Jews. But he did not know that he was heading straight for God's judgment. In fact, as soon as he'd said those words, the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an invisible but fatal blow. He was seized with sharp intestinal pains for which there was no relief. He had to be carried around after this. He couldn't even get around on his own. The story continues that he had a quick little bedside confession of, oh my gosh, I guess this, this God of the Jews is a real person. And he says, hey guys, I hope there's no hard feelings, didn't mean it, please accept my son who's going to succeed me, and then he dies. So, interesting. Judah and his men come up to Jerusalem after more battle, after the battle of Emmaus. In the, in the 25th day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev, in the year 164 BC, the anniversary of the Gentiles had desecrated the altar. On that day, a sacrifice was offered on the new altar in accordance with the law of Moses. The new altar was dedicated and hymns were sung to the accompaniment of harps, lutes, and cymbals. All the people bowed down with their faces to the ground and worshipped and praised the Lord for giving them victory. For eight days, they celebrated the rededication of the altar. With great joy, they brought burnt offerings and offered fellowship offerings and thanksgiving offerings. Hanukkah helps to frame our attitudes towards God's house and his word. Just like Malachi ends, remember the law of Moses, my servant, and all the statutes and commandments. What are we celebrating again? Is it oil that lasted for eight days when it should have lasted for one? I would submit no. Because at the end of all these battles, at the end of all these miracles, it was kind of possible for them to sit there and say, was this us? Did we just kind of get lucky? Or was this God? And I'd submit to you with the miracle of the lights, God let them know, hey, I've been with you every step of the way. This was me. And the Maccabees were not an inclusive bunch. They didn't care about your personal convictions. When they took over, any male in Israel was circumcised. They didn't go around taking a poll. They didn't ask what your personal conviction is. They said, if you're going to live in, if you're going to be part of Israel, you observe the Torah or you get out or you will die. They chose death before dishonoring God. And so the question here for each of us is, are God's priorities your priorities? What did the word made flesh do? Well, Yeshua in John 2, 
drove people doing business out of the temple. And he, he said, stop making my father's house a place of business. He chased them out with whips. How many of us would have that kind of zeal? Or do we spend time trying to make excuses on why it's not relevant? Zeal for your house will consume me. In John 10, he's sitting in the temple in uh, the portico of Solomon during Hanukkah. And the Jews are around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? Are you the Messiah or not? So Yeshua kept Hanukkah. And he had a passionate zeal for the temple. The temple that less than 200 years before that had been defiled by Antiochus and had been cleansed. Are God's priorities our priorities? Would we have stood with the Maccabees in that time or would we have taken the easy route like the majority did and say, well, I could be a little more Greek. I can compromise. I can kind of make excuses. And oh, come on, look at it. And, and God's, it's okay. We have flexibility, guys. Come on. Paul says in Romans that he would wish himself accursed if it meant the salvation of the Jewish people. His kinsmen, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and daughters, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Paul was passionate for Israel, so much so that if it meant Israel being saved, he would have wished himself accursed. Are these things you care about? Because Paul really cared about these things. Yeshua really cared about these things. Like the Maccabees really cared about these things. And when the canon of this knock was closed, all of Israel was told to really care about these things. These are the big things that matters. Psalm 112, verse 1, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the person who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. I don't delight in uh, the municipal code in Plano. In fact, when I see speed limit signs, I get a little upset. I'm not going to lie. If you are not able to, and this is something I've learned more and more, if you come across any mitzvot, any command that you do not delight in, there's something wrong with you. Not God. There's something wrong with you. And it's on you to figure that out. There's a story of a, a, young, a young family back in the mid-'80s, and they had God put it on their hearts to keep the Sabbath. As far as they knew at the time, they were not Jewish. But they felt very passionately, nope, Jesus... He worshipped on Saturday the Sabbath, and that's what we should do too. So they did. And it was a very, very strong conviction. And they, so they had someone coming over to their house, the pastor actually, to try to talk them out of it. And they realized Saturday morning, oh my gosh, we don't have like any food in the house to really share. Uh-oh, what do we do? And so they looked at each other, this husband and wife, and said, okay, let's... Don't want to have to do this. Let's run to the store real quick and grab a couple snacks. Okay. So they did. The guy came over and they talked. He did not convince them. And he left. 
and so that, that evening, uh, the family had, had two kids, uh, a four-year-old and an almost two-year-old son. And one of the snacks they grabbed was a thing of mixed peanuts, mixed nuts. And so the almost two-year-old wanted, wanted some. So the mom poured some into a cup and said, here you go. This, this little uh, almost two-year-old, this toddler, took them and crammed them all into his mouth at once. Which the mom goes, what are you doing? I'm going to take that cup from you now, chew it's in your mouth, and then you can have more. A reasonable parent thing to do. The uh, toddler did not appreciate that. So the toddler threw himself back in a fit. Unbeknownst to them in that moment, the toddler throwing himself back in a fit, threw himself on the ground, thrashing around. A peanut started to go into his lung. That night he was wheezing, and they said, something's not right. So they took him to the doctor. The doctor sent them to another hospital where they spent the nights in an oxygen tent. And they did a surgery to remove the peanut. A young boy's aunt, the young boy's aunt called the dad and said, oh my gosh, is he okay? I'm a nurse at a neighboring hospital. We just had that happen with a baby and a piece of popcorn. The doctor lost control of the piece of popcorn. The baby died. Is he okay? He goes, yeah, he's, he's fine. He's recovering. So that is the story of how I spent the night in an oxygen tent when I was almost two years old. When anyone ever wants to know why I'm very adamant that I will not go by on Shabbat, especially peanuts, <laughs> most of you probably don't have a story about how when you became convicted over Sabbath, you compromised once and you almost lost your son. Well, my parents do. And while I don't remember any of this story, uh, of course I'd never throw a fit and thrash around. It's very unlike me. Ask my wife. How quickly God corrected them. Because that had never happened before and it never happened again. If you think God doesn't care about your obedience, you're wrong. Read your Bible. Faith without your works is dead. If you read any of God's word and you're dismissing it, it's a problem with your heart. In Revelation 14, here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Yeshua. Another way to translate that, here is the steadfastness of the holy ones who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Where in God's word have you compromised? Where are you being more like the Hellenized Jews who fought the Maccabees rather than being a Maccabee? What commands do you make excuses over? Are you zealous for God's house? Are you zealous for his word? Do you love his Torah? Does saying that sound weird to you? Because I promise you, your flesh does not love it. God doesn't change. For him to change, it would mean he had to learn something new and then become different based on that new information. But he knows your beginning to end. None of us are in that situation. 
Each and every one of us learns new things. And then it's upon you to change based on that new thing you have learned. You need to learn. We need to learn and change based on the things that God teaches us, based on growing in his word, on being better disciples of Messiah. When God's word is made flesh, he dwells among us. Is his word in your flesh? Is his word changing you? Does his word bring a passion in you? Would the music team please come up? Join me in prayer. Avina Shavat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Lights of lights, in whom is no darkness or shadow of turning. Lord, I thank you for this festival. I thank you for the miracles and the wonders and the salvations that you performed through your holy priests. Lord, I ask that the passion and the zeal that they had for your word, for your Torah, the same zeal that Messiah Yeshua had for your house, that your apostles and disciples had for your word, that each of them was willing to go to death, to their deaths, knowing that Messiah Yeshua was resurrected. Lord, I ask that that passion and that zeal would be in our faith, that we would be dedicated, for the kingdom is within us, and we, each of us individually, are temples. Lord, I ask that you would purify us, that you would dedicate us. Lord, where we sin, I ask that you would have mercy on us and teach us to do better. Lord, each and every person in this room has a stronghold, whether it's big or small, something they have not yielded to you. Each of us has something we have not yielded to you. In this festival of dedication, I ask that you would show us where we are not like Messiah Yeshua and that you would treat us as your children and in mercy reprimand us and show us the right way you want us to walk. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you by the name of the King of Kings, Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Haksmeach. Haksmeach.